Welcome to Movie Time Capsule. Pull up a chair, get comfortable. If this is your first time here, this is the podcast where I tell my guests that the world is ending and then they must choose the movies that they think are worth saving. On this episode, we have Lee Chesnut. He has a huge heart for movies and he also works in the music industry. He is responsible for the success of two famous songs, one that he discovered in a David Lynch movie and the other is one of the most memorable songs from the 90s. After that, we'll get into his capsule where he shares his personal connection to Field of Dreams. He'll reveal a little-known fact about the song written for The Breakfast Club. You'll get to hear his interesting capsule choice for the movie Avatar. Plus, he has a pick for the hottest sex scene of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, get yourself a whiskey drink. My name is Luke Cheney. Here we go. It is time to talk about movies. All your favorites. All your loved ones. We will hear them. And we'll cheer them. It is time for Movie Time Capsule. With me today is a man, a movie lover, a music lover, a man for an entire year only communicated through hilarious internet memes. He is the A&R consultant for Republic Records and NBC's The Voice. Welcome to the show, Lee Chestnut. Thank you, Luke. How's it going? It's going awesome. Of course, that bit about your memes for a year is is fake, but you do... You do have some of the best memes out there going around. Nice to hear. <laughs> so, Lee, for our listener, could you explain what A&R is and, and how you got into it? So, A&R is basically a talent scout for a record label. The A stands for artists and the R stands for repertoire. So you're working for a record label trying to help them find either artists that you want to sign to the label, or you're in charge of trying to find uh, the music, the material for them to record. The way that I got into A&R is a really long and winding road and I wouldn't want to bore you with it, um, other than to say that I did a lot of other things in the music industry that led up to me getting my first A&R gig. I sort of fell into it by accident. Um, In the mid 90s, I was the head of music programming for VH1 in New York. And some friends of mine started their own independent record label, which was called Republic Records, (laughs) which is now the biggest and most successful record label in the music industry. So when it first started, it was just an indie and it was my two friends who were brothers, Monty and Avery Lippman, and I was their secret A&R guy who was moonlighting at night. You know, I told my boss at VH1 that I was doing it and uh, yeah. and he was okay with it. And the first thing that I signed for them was Chumbawamba and the rest is sort of history. <laughs> wow, Chumbawamba. How about that? How did you, where did you find them? So I used to subscribe to a tip sheet, a music industry tip sheet that came out of the UK. And about once a month, this tip sheet would include Uh, a CD that would have all the new releases that were coming from the record labels. And it occasionally would include songs that were unsigned. And I used to listen to it all the time because I love British music. And uh, Tub Thumping was one of the unsigned songs that was on there. And literally I I had one of those moments like you see in a movie where as the song was playing, I just turned around in my chair. I'm staring at the CD player. I had chill bumps and I just knew, I absolutely knew that this song was a thing. 
Chill bumps. <laughs> yes, chill bumps, goose bumps, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Wow. And you were on the money. Like everyone loved that song in, what was that, 97? 97. It ended up playing out exactly the way that I sort of pitched it to the guys at Republic. I said, this is not just going to be a hit song. It's going to be a phenomenon. It's going to go beyond the radio. It's going to play at frat parties. It's going to play at sporting events. People who don't even really buy popular music or listen to the radio, they're going to hear it. They're going to love it. You know, it's an anthem. And that's really pretty much what happened. Yeah, that's insane. Like, it's... (laughs) It's all because of you in a way that it got out to everybody. I still make money off of it to this day because they still use it in TV commercials and movies and TV shows. And, you know, we get a little bit of money every time it it gets used. (laughs) That is insane. And when you hear it now, do you, do you hate hearing it or is it still just like kind of like a joy that takes you back? Oh, I mean, it's it's 100% joy. I mean, it, it makes me smile every time I hear it. A lot of great memories attached to it. Plus, it's a song that's sort of designed to make you smile, if you think about it. It's, yeah. it's pretty fun. <laughs> you know? It's so much fun. And so um, you're responsible for another song, Getting Huge Success. And Michelle McNulty, our, our friend, uh, clued me into this. And I'm going to read a Los Angeles Times article, just the the first part, Um, and then I'll let you take it over. But um, it says, visionary filmmaker David Lynch and Atlanta radio music director Lee Chesnut make an odd couple. (laughs) But they have one thing in common. Last fall, they were probably the only two people in America who thought Chris Isaac's Wicked Game was a hit song. Yes. (laughs) So you're, you're a huge David Lynch fan, right? He is my favorite director by far. And so therefore, you know, I went to see Wild at Heart in the theaters. I think I saw it three times before, you know, it got yanked because it wasn't really a big hit. Yeah, Nicholas Nicholas Cage and Laura Dern. That's right. Um, And so I think after about the third time that I saw it, when I came out of the theater, there was a song that was stuck in my head that was from the soundtrack. And I was like, what is that song? It's haunting me. (laughs) So I went back to the radio station where I worked and I dug out the soundtrack CD and started, you know, punching through it until I recognized the song. Um, The version that's in the movie is just an instrumental. So I was kind of delighted to hear that there was like this cool kind of sexy vocal on the song. And once again, Goosebumps, you know, I was like, this sounds like a hit. Yeah. I went to my boss at the radio station. I was just the music director. So I went to the program director and I said, we need to start playing this song. And he said, why? And I said, just because I think it's a hit. <laughs> and he's like, look, we're a top 40 radio station. And, and yeah, you know, you've played me the song and it sounds cool and everything, but we specialize in Paul Abdul, CNC Music Factory, Vanilla mm-hmm. Ice, and Janet Jackson. It just doesn't fit. And I'm like, don't you see? That's why it'll be a hit. It'll stand out. It'll sound like nothing else on the air. And he was like, no, 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 it's just not for us. And I said, please, how about this? Can we play it one time? Can we just play it one time? And he said, okay, go play it in middays tomorrow. So we did, and the the request lines exploded (laughs) after one play. And it was our number one request by the end of the week. So we put it into regular rotation. I called up uh, Chris's record label, and Mm -hmm. I said, you have a hit song. 
on your hands? Like, why are you not promoting it? And they're like, well, that song is from a two-year-old album. We already tried to promote it. It went nowhere. It bombed. Chris has moved on. He's recording a new record. So thanks, but no thanks. Right. So I hung up and I thought, no, no, no. This is my big chance to make a name for myself in this business. You know, I'm going to make this happen somehow. So I started calling radio stations myself where I knew other music directors. And I called them at stations all over the country, not just in the South where I was. I wanted to make sure it wasn't just some Southern thing. And this, like doing, calling these stations, like that's not part of your usual job. Like you're going above and beyond. Correct. I'm just calling other radio programmers that I know and asking them to, to do me a favor. I'm like, would you just play the song once the way that we did and let me know if the same thing happens with your request lines? Right. And it did at every single radio station. And then the greatest part of the whole story was that Chris Isaac became a star just instantly because, you know, he, not only was it a great song, he's a very good looking, charismatic guy. And God bless Chris Isaac every single time he was on TV whether it was the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or the, you know, Today Show with Bryant Gumble, they would ask him, they would say, so I hear your song kind of became a hit in an unusual way. And he would tell the story and he said my name on TV every single time. It was just no the most awesome thing. <laughs> that is so cool. You've changed history for music and for movies twice now. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> so cool. All right, Lee, I just got a uh, an alert on my phone. I don't I don't know if you got it too, but it says that uh the world is going to be invaded by aliens. And so I think it's best that we move on to your time capsule and start filling it up with your choices. I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, Lee, what's the first movie you ever remember seeing in a movie theater? Wow. First of all, I grew up in a very small town in Alabama called Camden, and there were less than 2,000 people there. So we didn't even have a movie theater in the town. You had to drive to Selma, Alabama, which was 45 minutes away. And so, you know, going to the movies was kind of a, a big deal. This may not have been the very first, but the one that's sort of coming to me is Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so many kids were really traumatized when, uh, you know, when Bambi's mother was killed. And I definitely remember that very well. So I don't know how old I would have been. And I don't even think I was seeing the original release. You know, back in those days, they would take those Walt Disney movies and just do re-releases into the theaters every so often. And, oh. you know, new kids are coming in. So, yeah, I don't even know what year Bambi came out, but I doubt I saw it on the original release. No, that was uh, 1942, if I'm correct yeah. here. So, that, I yeah, I never knew that Disney did those re-releases. That's pretty smart of yes, them. Yes, <laughs> they did. And I... I saw I definitely saw that in a theater I don't know which one though <laughs> yeah very cool Bambi there it is Lee what is a movie that when you watched it for the first time it blew your mind <laughs> well we have to come back to David Lynch again when I was in college it was back when his film Eraserhead was still a midnight movie on college campuses all across the country, even though the, the, the movie is from 77 and I was in college in the 80s. 
is just it ran on the uh, midnight movie circuit for years and years and years. I mean, that okay. kind of movie is really designed to be a midnight movie. But yes, my my mind was 100% completely blown by that film. For those who haven't seen it, what? how do you describe it? Oh my God. That's part of the charm of it is that it's almost impossible to describe. Um, <laughs> gosh, it's, it's a man who's living in some sort of a really grim, gray industrial type environment. And I believe that David Lynch originally started filming it as like a student film and it took him about five years to make. Yeah. And he basically lived on the film set. I think he slept and ate there and everything. And this, this, this movie and this little world that he created became everything to him. But it's just basically about a man who's barely scraping by. He works at a factory. He meets a girl, gets her pregnant. She has what they think is a baby. <laughs> and it turns very nightmarish. And it's, 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 it's surreal. It's very difficult to tell the difference between what's really happening and what's a dream and what's a psychotic break of his. The man is clearly losing his mind from all the stress. And oh, it's, it, it's a movie that can't really be described. It just has to be experienced. What's the best film for someone to that hasn't seen David Lynch for them to get like an intro to David Lynch that, you know, with the goal being they would that they would see more of his films? So I think it's easier to enter the David Lynch world if you can do it with one of his linear films. Sure. Um, Blue Velvet is a very highly regarded film and it is linear. Uh, you know, it's just as edgy and strange and bizarre as his other films, but it's also incredibly easy to follow. It's straightforward. So that would be a nice entry for most people. The hallmark of most David Lynch films is, uh, you know, a non-linear narrative. And some people are incredibly irritated and pushed away by that. Sure. So I would say come in with Blue Velvet and if you like what you see, then maybe you expand from there. There you go. I like it. Now, I know that a lot of our friends come to you for advice. You're very wise. And maybe they <laughs> would come to you to get cheered up. Uh, what movie would you show someone to cheer them up? Strangely enough, I think I would say Harold and Maud. Oh. From 1971, which probably sounds like an odd choice because the main character in the film is suicidal. Right. But I think ultimately that's why it does its job of cheering you up because it takes you on his journey from someone who does not want to live to someone who is full of life and enjoying every single second of it, uh, you know, thanks to the character that Ruth Gordon played in that film. So that's an all time favorite movie of mine. So I would recommend it for any reason, but yeah, if someone was kind of down, I'd probably say Harold and Maude. Yeah, that's a great answer. I mean, we've had this question um, on a lot of episodes and the ones that I really like are the ones where the person starts out with the struggle and, um, you know, if someone needs cheering up, like usually they're going through their own stuff. And yeah, this movie can show you that, you know, life can change at any moment. Uh, you never know when. 
Yeah, the best way to cheer somebody up is to sort of take them through a journey that starts with where they are right now. So you might be tempted to say, well, you know, if I really want to cheer them up, I'll just give them a really, really silly Farrelly Brothers comedy and make them laugh a lot. But, you know, you're not really addressing anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> with that, you know, although I love the Farrelly Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100 um, percent. Lee. Now, I wouldn't say that you're an emotional guy. I actually am. I just don't have an emotional surface. <laughs> People say I'm a bit stoic for the stoic. most part. Stoic. But, but I'm very emotional. You're very emotional. So do you cry in movies? Is that, does that happen a lot? Not often, but yes. Yes, for sure. Is there one movie that's guaranteed to make you cry every time you watch it? Oh, absolutely. Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. And I think that probably most men are going to give you that answer. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's even more than just that, though. That movie feels so deeply personal to me for a number of reasons. Um, I lost my father back in 2001, and he was a baseball player in college. And just like Kevin Costner's character, I didn't want to play baseball. With <laughs> right. So the whole thing to me just feels like, Oh my God, what are wow. you doing to me here? Yeah. yeah. It's tough for me to watch that film now without sort of just crying through the whole thing. Not just that one scene at the end that is guaranteed to make you cry. Right. Yeah. But for me, just the whole thing from beginning to end is just, you know, if I'm not crying, I'm sort of on the verge of tears through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite movies. Uh, I actually got to go to the field because I'm from <laughs> Illinois and um, my family, we drove from Colorado to Illinois to see my grandma. And I was like, dad, we got to go. We're so close to the field, like two hours away. We got to go drive to the field. And so we, we drove out of the way and uh, parked our RV not too far away. And we were the first ones there uh, in the morning. And we had the whole place to ourselves. And, you know, I like to go visit movie places in real life. And, you know, when you get there, they're usually very different and they're the lighting's bad or they've changed, but I feel the dreams field is still very much the same and intact. And like, I got chills just being in there and uh, we didn't have a baseball cause I don't play baseball, but we threw a Frisbee um, on the mound, me and my dad. And it was, uh, it was pretty special. Was the house, is the house still there or was it? Yeah. The yeah, house is still the there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's a couple more buildings, barns and stuff around and they have a little uh, tiny shed guest shop thing. Um, kind of like in the parking lot area, but yeah, it's uh, it's in the middle of a giant, giant field of corn. Well, if you build it, they will come. And apparently yeah. that has come true even <laughs> outside of the movie itself. Yeah. It's pretty wow. cool. That's incredible. <laughs> Now, Lee, um, when you and your husband sit down to watch a movie, do you guys, what, what type of movies do you guys usually watch? We, we sort of watch everything. I, I know that's a boring answer, but. <laughs> do you, how often do you guys put on a, a horror movie or a scary movie? Not that often. I think we're both sort of of the opinion that horror movies seem to have a greater impact when you're young. Mm-hmm. I've sort of reached a point to where for the most part, when it comes to a scary movie, I've sort of seen it all and felt it all. And it, it yeah. sort of gets recycled. Is there one movie in your memory, maybe when you, when you were a lot younger that 
just scared the shit out of you? Well, as a really young kid, of course, it was the Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know, really? I probably was five or six years old and just terrified of the Wicked Witch and the flying monkeys and the all monkeys. of that. Yes, I remember that. But then you start seeing, you know, once you're teenagers is when you really want to start going to see the scary movies. And so mm-hmm. I think I was 15 or 16 when the original Halloween came out with Jamie Lee Curtis, which I thought was fantastic and very scary. And by the way, if you haven't seen that film recently, it holds up remarkably well. It's still very effective. Such a such a well-made movie to have been done on a ridiculously low budget. I, I think I read somewhere, I read somewhere recently, I think that that is considered the most successful budget-wise the most successful film of all time, like the profits measured against how much they spent. It's, it's yeah. like a huge, huge difference, but it's a great film. That sounds about right. Yeah. Cause yeah, the production value is super low on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it served, it served the film well to be low budget. It felt more real to me. You know, it was just kids that were going trick-or-treating and someone's babysitting. And, you know, it was very simple, but that's what made it seem more real to me. Yeah. And the uh, the handheld POV shots, you know, I'm not sure how often that was used before that movie, but it's, you know, gave us like the killer cam that we see so much now. Right. Yes. And it's such a cheap thing to do. Just take the camera camera up and, <laughs> <laughs> and act like you're Mike Myers. What is a movie, this is a new question for the podcast that I haven't done before. What is a movie that is either underrated or unknown and needs to be seen by more people? Are you a fan of Richard Linklater? I do love Days and Confused. Yes. I, I have too. not seen um, Boyhood. Right. That's at the top of my list to see. Have you seen any of the before movies, before Sunset? I recently watched before the first one and I loved it. Jessica did not. So I have to wait to get to the next one uh, to watch it by myself at some point. Well, I love all of his films, but my all time favorite came out in 2001 and it's called Waking Life. And it didn't do much. I think it made maybe $3 million at the box office. Um, it got a little bit of attention because at the time, the technique that they used to make the film, I think it's called rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. And it was new back in 2001. And if I understand it correctly, I think with a handheld camera, Linklater filmed all of the people in their scenes and then they just turned that film over to artists who go in and just draw on top of that. (laughs) And the really trippy thing is that when you're watching this movie, sometimes mid scene or even mid sentence, uh, the artist who's doing the drawing changes. (laughs) So the perspective is constantly shifting in this film. But it's, it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea. It's a deeply philosophical film. It talks about things like the meaning of life. It's a bunch of people sitting around talking about things like uh, uh, lucid dreams, these, these types of issues. It's, just, it's almost like uh, eavesdropping on a philosophy class or something, and which is right up my alley. I love that. Um, yeah. But it's definitely not for everybody. 
but I, I've seen that film probably, God, no less than a dozen times. It's so great. Wow. I have not seen it. Is that the one with Keanu Reeves and Robert Downey Jr.? No, that one I think was a scanner darkly. There you go. Yeah. Which yeah, also yeah. used the rotoscoping, if I remember correctly. I never saw that one. I've just seen clips of it. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I thought you were talking about Scanner Darkly as the way you're describing it, but yeah, it looks a lot similar as far as, yeah, rotoscoping and drawing over images. Very cool. Wow, you've already talked about movies that have given you goosebumps. What movie did you watch when you were young and while you're watching it, you thought, I am not old enough to be watching this film? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you something. I, I had a pretty sheltered childhood. Our parents were very protective of that kind of stuff. So I don't remember really seeing anything too young, you know, that I shouldn't have been. Um, I do remember being about 12 years old and my sister and I saw a TV movie um, that was called Trilogy of Terror. And it starred Karen Black. And it was three short stories that were all scary stories. But there was one of those stories in particular that just absolutely terrorized my sister and I. And I sort of wished at that time that I'd never seen it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you go watch, you can see it online. And if you watch the one that scared me so bad, it looks ridiculous now. I think that Trilogy of Terror is considered a camp classic now because it's just so kind of over the top. And Karen Black is a bit of an over the top actress. But God, that that movie, yeah, that really terrorized me. And it's the third one that everybody to this day still talks about. It's about a woman who is, uh, she's some sort of an anthropologist, I believe, and she goes to Africa. And when she comes back, she's got some sort of a little doll that some of the natives gave her. Uh And they told her to be careful with it and make sure that you never take the necklace off of this doll because it'll come to life. And of course, she thinks this is all very silly and the necklace comes off and the thing comes to life and it chases her around the apartment with this little spear in its hand going. (laughs) And I don't know why, it just just got my sister and I when we were young. (laughs) It was so scary. (laughs) Yeah, there's something about like movies that have little tiny creatures that are just terrifying because... You have, you know, as a kid, you have little toys and Chuckies around your house that you're like, this thing could come get me at night. <laughs> so true. <laughs> is there, if there is a perfect film, what is your perfect film? Well, I have to come back to David Lynch once again. You know, he's done a lot of movies, but to me, his ultimate masterpiece is Mulholland Drive. And I, there's no telling how many times I've seen that movie, like maybe 20. Yeah. Um, and the amazing thing about it is that every time I see it, I notice something that I did not notice before. Like yes. 20 viewings in, I'm still picking up on stuff because the film is really put together like a puzzle that's almost impossible to completely decipher. But I think even if you're a person that's annoyed by a non-linear narrative, there's still so much to love about that film. First of all, it's gorgeous to look at. It's one of the most beautiful films to look at, not to mention the beautiful actresses that he cast in those two lead roles were just absolutely amazing. I mean, I fell in love with Naomi Watts (laughs) in that film. And I was pissed off when she didn't get an Oscar nomination. I mean, she got to do everything in that movie. She got to play the wide-eyed, hopeful actress. She got to play the really 
bitter, sort of vindictive, scorned ex. She got to play a bad actress. She got to play a great actress in that one really famous scene at the audition. She's incredibly sexy. That sex scene between she and and Laura Herring is one of the hottest, that might be the hottest sex scene I've ever seen in any movie. I remember I saw saw that film one time, one of the times I saw it in the theater, I went with these two girls that are friends of mine who are both singers and they are sisters. And we came out of that movie and one of the sisters announced, well, that's it. I'm ready to be a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you know what? I am too. (laughs) It's just such a hot sex scene. You know, and then to top it all off, back to Naomi Watts, she's doing an American accent really well. You know, yeah. I just was blown away by her in every every conceivable way. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but David Lynch casts people for his films from headshots. He didn't make her audition. I remember that, yeah. He picked her headshot. He, he called Naomi Watts. He picked her from a headshot. And then he just talks to them. He has an in-person interview and talks to them. And that's how he decides. That makes no sense. I mean, I guess he, he it's, he's been correct, though. So, yeah. I mean, can you do that with, with the voice auditions when we do the pre-auditions? Do you know for sure when you're going to see a good voice or not out of someone just by their looks? Every now and then, I'll be in an audition room. And, you know, they come in one at a time and every now and then the door will open and the next person is walking in to walk up to the stage and you'll look over at them and you'll just get a feeling just Mm -hmm. by looking at them. And it has nothing to do with whether or not they're attractive. Sometimes people who aren't conventionally attractive, they just have that aura about them. They just got that thing. Michelle will tell you, she and I will never forget the very first time that we saw Bryn Cartelli. She was walking in the room and I just felt like I'd seen a, a vision. And she, it's funny, on that first season that we cast her, no chairs turned for her. But we were so convinced that she was a star that we brought her back and then she won that season. <laughs> <laughs> what's your, since we're talking about the voice, what's your your personal favorite song to listen to from the show? My all-time favorite cover that anyone has ever done on the show would be a singer named Hunter Plake. And he did a version of I Want to Know What Love Is. And the version was entirely his arrangement, his idea. I still listen to it even now. It's so good. That's funny that you you chose that song because... My favorite song is that song, but by Terry McDermott. Oh, yeah. I like Terry's version so much that when the original comes on on the radio, I, I have to turn it off because I, I think it's bad almost compared <laughs> to what Terry did with it. It's crazy. <laughs> I hear you. Okay, uh, Lee, is there a movie that you will remember forever, not because of the content of the movie itself, but because of the experience that you saw the movie under? that makes it so unique. There is one that stands out for me. Uh, In 1996, I was working for VH1, living in Manhattan, and they decided to have the movie premiere of The Preacher's Wife, starring Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington. They decided to have the premiere in New York at the Ziegfeld Theater. 
it's closed now, which is such a shame, but it was one of those really just beautiful old grand movie houses. It was a single screen theater that you just felt like you were walking into something from a long time ago with the giant ceilings and the ornate decorations and stuff. And this is where they chose to have the premiere for The Preacher's Wife. And what made it so unique was for me, was that, you know, the stars were there and they were sitting in the audience. So it sort of changes the way that everybody in the audience acts. (laughs) They're clapping at the end of scenes and they're cheering when the people's names are going by in the credits. And it was definitely a one of a kind experience. So I'll, I'll never forget that. Were people cheering, like pandering because they, they knew the stars were there? Was it like fake? I sort of felt like that was a little bit of it, but I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe they were enjoying the movie. I just don't think this is the way they would have acted if it had just been a normal screening, (laughs) you know? Although I will say I also used to go see action films at the Ziegfeld while I lived there because the audience would go crazy at the end of every action sequence. They would scream and cheer and applaud. I had never experienced that before I moved uh, to New York. And, you know, I'm not even a big fan of action films in general, but I would go to them in New York just for the crowd experience. Just for that. That is so (laughs) cool. Yeah, because I, I mean, I've heard of it kind of just like as an iconic place. Is it, it feels like it's just for, you know, hardcore movie lovers. It's like, as if it was like an arc light 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Lee, we've got just a couple more slots left in your in your capsule here. What's a movie that you would choose to show to sum up the good side of humans? I would have to say Avatar. Yeah, there was, uh, to me, there's just a really strong spirit of humanity that's in that film. And it was fascinating to me that this was all coming from James Cameron. Especially when you compare it against Aliens starring Sigourney Weaver, where if you think about Aliens, the bad guys were the aliens and the good guys were the military. And the roles are reversed in Avatar. (laughs) The aliens are the good guys and the military is the bad guys, which I thought almost represented some sort of an awakening that James Cameron must have had. You know, I'm not saying that the military is bad, but it definitely was bad in this one film. You know, they went there. I guess it's not fair to say that it was the military that it was bad. It was the government that sent them there to do their work. You know, they wanted to drive these indigenous people away from their home because, you know, there were, what was it called? Unobtainium. Unobtainium. (laughs) Yes, which I thought was a ridiculous name. (laughs) Everyone (laughs) hates that name. unobtainium give me a break but anyway yeah it was very valuable and it was underneath where they lived and so you know that gives the government a good reason to drive them out of there and i think that that's actually going on in the world even right now as we speak and um that was such a wildly popular movie i think it's still the biggest money maker of all time and so the idea that so many people saw that film and may have been moved and affected by it and come around to the you know the thinking that uh those types of choices are wrong i i don't know i felt like that movie was good for humanity yeah it's you know i think people mostly just see it as an action fantasy but it you know it slips in there a great metaphor about 
how you treat other people who don't look like you or other species, you know, whether it be animals or whatever, you know, just because we have the bigger guns and the bigger um, stick yeah. doesn't mean that we should use it. Absolutely. Totally agree. Since you are into music, you work in the music industry. Do you love watching movie musicals? No, I don't like musicals. I never have. <laughs> <laughs> There's so few musicals that I've ever seen that I enjoyed. The ones that I have enjoyed are the ones that I think did a better job of making it at least seem like the songs were somehow actually organically coming out of the scene. There's something just so jarring about watching people act out a story and then suddenly they break out into song. I just, I don't know. Even as a kid watching The Wizard of Oz, we'd watch it every year. It would be like on TV. They'd play it at the same time every year and we would always watch it. But I would always leave and go to the kitchen or the bathroom whenever they started singing. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds weird for someone who loves music and loves film. I don't like them together. I, I enjoyed the movie once quite a bit. That's not truly a musical it kind of is that's the way i would want a musical done to where it's all organic it's all really happening (laughs) the songs are being sung because that's what's actually happening in their story that's sort of my favorite type of musical even though it's not a musical yeah it's hard to make it to make music integrated naturally and like that's really what movies at the core, they're trying to give you this fantasy where it's a seamless experience where you're taken away. And I think I'm on the same page with you, like musicals where people just jump into song takes you out of that fantasy. Right. Yeah. I've got, I got another one for you. Let's say that the only source of music that you have in your bunker to listen to over and over is one soundtrack. What soundtrack would you take with you to listen to over and over? I would probably say the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I just think that was yeah. the greatest movie soundtrack ever. And of course, it hit me in in what we music lovers call your sweet spot, music that was released when you were between the ages of about 15 and 22 or 23. That's when music tends to matter the most to people. Yeah. So I think I was maybe 16 when that movie came out and that soundtrack was just something else. It really was. Love it. You cannot deny that, that, uh, that baseline when it comes on. <laughs> yes. Staying alive. Now I will say that I think that the greatest song to ever come from a movie soundtrack was don't you forget about me by simple minds. Oh, that was written for the movie. Yes, it was. In fact, it was uh, it was written by the guy who also scored the movie. If you go back and watch that film, they use portions of the instrumental track to that song to score a lot of the scenes in the film. <laughs> it's not just that the song plays, the song not only plays at the beginning and at the end, but instrumental versions of it are being used to score the film. I think it's probably the most effective movie soundtrack song that has ever, ever, ever been used. Oh my God, I have to go back and, and watch and listen to that now. I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, the song was written by the guy who scored the film. And so he pitched it to Simple Minds and they turned it down. 
they didn't want it. They didn't want to sing an outside song, you know, from an outside songwriter. So then he went to Brian Ferry, who also turned it down. Billy Idol claims that it was pitched to him, even though I've heard that uh, the songwriter is not so sure that that actually happened. But it makes sense in my head because the vocal almost sounds a little Billy Idol-esque, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. And Billy Idol ended up recording his own version of it years later that wasn't very good. Um, (laughs) But he clearly feels some sort of an attachment to that song now. But apparently, um, at the time, the lead singer of Simple Minds, a guy named Jim Kerr, was dating Chrissy Hine, who's the lead singer of The Pretenders. And Chrissy heard the song and fell in love with it and told him, you're a fool if you don't record this song. And so he changed his mind. And of course, it ended up becoming their signature hit. And they became really big and had other hits here after that, thanks to that one song. Yeah. But man, that's, that is just the greatest song. And I love how other movies now use that song. Like it was used heavily in the first Pitch Perfect movie. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of movies that are synonymous with the song and the song is synonymous with the movie, but I feel like that one is the king when it comes to link just being linked forever. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Lee, it's time to get into your bunker for the aliens that are coming. You've got to choose one movie to take with you. The only one you could ever watch over and over and over. What's the movie that you can watch all the time? Okay, so the movie that I'm going to place in the time capsule is Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe film from the year 2000. And it does such a good job of, once again, bringing together my love of movies and my love of music. They come together so perfectly in this film. And I feel like the main character in that movie, I think the kid's name was William, played by Patrick Ujit, I think is his name. I identified so heavily with that kid. That kid might as well have been me, you know, a teenager who was obsessed with music, desperate to work in the industry, but didn't sing and didn't play an instrument. So what am I going to do? But I've got to somehow get close to these people and be a part of all of this. That was me. And it's just a, it's another movie that just feels deeply, deeply personal to me. And don't even get me started on the scene where Tiny Dancer plays on the tour bus. I I can almost cry just picturing that scene. I don't even have to see it. I think about it and I get chills. Yeah, I'm I'm getting them right now. That is, I mean, I discovered that song through that movie and it is such an awesome moment. You know, when, when everyone in a movie is just singing together and it's natural it's it doesn't happen a lot but it is an amazing scene and i also love that movie so great isn't it weird uh when you find out that tiny dancer never hit the top 40 when it was originally released they released it and it bombed (laughs) and now it's become one of his most beloved songs and i think in large part because of that film yes it's so weird i mean it sounds it doesn't really sound that much different than any of his other music. I mean, I don't, it doesn't make sense why it wasn't big back then, but I'm so glad that Cameron Crowe put it in there. He has the he has a, an amazing taste in music with all of his movies. God, he absolutely does. Well, he was that Patrick 
Fujit character. That's him, right. you yeah. know? So yeah, I'm sure that's probably his most personal film. I can't imagine a movie being more personal than that to him. Yeah. Oh, now I want to go back and watch that movie. It's, it's so good. <laughs> it, I, it definitely holds up with repeated viewings. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wish he would come out with, I feel like he he peaked a long time ago because I haven't seen a good yeah. film from him for many years. It's so I know. sad. I'm so sad about that. I hate when that happens. Vanilla Sky is also one of my top favorite films, and which is so different from Almost Famous. And you're like, what can't this guy do if he can do these two amazing films? And then Jerry Maguire is also great. Jerry Maguire is just sort of like the ultimate romantic comedy that's also a sports movie. And, <laughs> it, and, and t tell me this, when you think about films and, and the, the very famous catchphrases that, that the quotes that mm -hmm. emerge from films, a film is lucky if it has even one. Do you know how many <laughs> Jerry Maguire? There's like at least five. You know, you complete me. Show me the money. Help me help you. Help me help you. There's so many of them. You it's had me at hello. You had me at hello. <laughs> so yeah. great. Who's so coming with me? <laughs> <laughs> and Vanilla Sky is definitely one of his sort of overlooked films. It's a movie that I felt like was almost fantastic like something about it falls a little bit short it was almost like Cameron Crowe trying to be David Lynch yeah. a little bit and just falling slightly short but man I still love that movie I think it's hands down it is uh, Cameron Diaz's finest performance from yeah. any film that she's ever done she oh, was yeah. the standout for me fantastic yeah, What's interesting about Vanilla Sky is that it came out in the year 2001, which is also the year that Mulholland Drive came out. Yeah. So it's sort of like a year where uh, nonlinear narratives sort of took hold. Other movies that came out that year were Donnie Darko Whoa. and Memento. Wow. And these are all, you know, every one of those mind trips is like a mind trip for sure. You know, yeah. 2001 was a really great year for movies, not just those kind. Wow. What a year. Okay, Lee, it's time to close up your capsule. And uh, as you know, I need you to provide the sound effect for your capsule closing. We're sealing it up. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> I don't know why it's so rusty and squeaky, though. Someone didn't take good care of that thing. I know it's, it should be brand new, ready to go. Yes. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for hopping on and educating me. I'm sure the listener is getting just tons of gems of music and movies. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. Oh, absolutely. It was a blast. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. If you want to see a recap of all of Lee's choices, you can go to lukechaney.com slash MTC. And if you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a one-sentence review. It would help me expand the show to more listeners like you. As always, I will leave you with a movie quote. It is, I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. <laughs>